Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to welcome my new Patreon supporter, Jake S., whose donations will be used to partly offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. So, thank you very much, Jake. Well, uh, for today's program, I've decided to go back in time a bit and listen to some words of wisdom from Aldous Huxley. Now, I realize that for many of our younger saloners, that name, uh, well, it probably is only faintly recognizable. And to be honest, my guess is that had he not inspired people like Alan Watts, Timothy Leary, and Terrence McKenna, well, we'd mainly be talking about Huxley's writing, uh, you know, books like Brave New World and his most significant book, Island. However, it's his 1954 book titled The Doors of Perception that is the one that, uh, well, in essence, began the current state of awareness about psychedelic substances. So, today I'm going to play two recordings of Huxley, uh, but as you listen to the first one, it may be worthwhile keeping in mind that one of my favorite sayings is, everything has changed, but nothing is different. So, as you are listening to this interview of Huxley that was conducted by the legendary Mike Wallace, try to keep in mind that these warnings by Aldous Huxley were given 60 years ago. That was before Kennedy was even elected, before the American War in Vietnam, before 9-11, and before the insanity of the Trump administration. Yet, as you'll hear, he could have been speaking just yesterday. It's uh, rather disconcerting, I think, but, uh, well, you should be your own judge of that. So now let's join Mike Wallace and Aldous Huxley, and after their interview, I'll be back to introduce another Huxley talk that I think you're going to be interested in. This is Aldous Huxley, a man haunted by a vision of hell on earth. A searing social critic, Mr. Huxley, 27 years ago, wrote Brave New World, a novel that predicted that someday the entire world would live under a frightful dictatorship. Today, Mr. Huxley says that his fictional world of horror is probably just around the corner for all of us. Good evening, I'm Mike Wallace. Tonight's guest, Aldous Huxley, is a man of letters as disturbing as he is distinguished. Born in England, now a resident of California, Mr. Huxley has written some of the most electric novels and social criticism of this century. He's just finished a series of essays called Enemies of Freedom, in which he outlines and defines some of the threats to our freedom in the United States. And Mr. Huxley, right off the bat, let me ask you this. As you see it, who and what are the enemies of freedom here in the United States? Well, I don't think you can say who in the United States. I don't think there are any sinister persons deliberately trying to rob people of their freedom. But I do think, first of all, that there are a number of impersonal forces which are pushing in the direction of less and less freedom. And I also think that there are a number of technological devices which anybody who wishes to use can use to accelerate this process of going away from freedom, of imposing control. What are these forces and these devices, Mr. Hudson? I should say that the, uh, there are two main impersonal forces. Uh, uh, the first of them is not exceedingly important in the United States at the present time, though very important in other countries. Uh, this is the 
force which in general terms can be called overpopulation, the, the mounting pressure of population pressing upon existing resources. Uh, this, of course, is an extraordinary thing. Something is happening which has never happened in the world's history before. I mean, let's just take a, a simple fact that between the, the time of the birth of Christ and the landing of the Mayflower, the population of the Earth doubled. It rose from 250 million to probably 500 million. Today, the population of the Earth is rising at such a rate that it will double in half a century. Well, why should overpopulation work to diminish our freedoms? Well, in a number of ways. I mean, the, the um, experts in the field, like Harrison Brown, for example, pointed out that in the underdeveloped countries, uh, actually the standard of living is at present falling. The people have less to eat and less goods per capita than they had 50 years ago. And as the position of these countries, the economic position, becomes more and more precarious, obviously the central government has to take over more and more responsibility for keeping the ship of state on an even keel. And then, of course, you're likely to get um, social unrest under such conditions with, again, an, inv uh, uh, an intervention of the central government. So that I think uh, you, one sees here a pattern which seems to be pushing very strongly towards a totalitarian regime. And unfortunately, as in all these uh, underdeveloped countries, the only highly organized political party is the Communist Party, it looks rather as though they will be the heirs to this uh, uh, unfortunate process, that they will step into the power, position of power. Well, then, ironically enough, one of the greatest forces against communism in the world, the Catholic Church, according to your thesis, would seem to be pushing us directly into the hands of the communists because they are against birth control. Well, I think this strange paradox probably is true. There is a... It's a, an extraordinary situation, actually. I mean, one has to look at it, of course, from a biological point of view. The whole essence of... Uh, of biological life on Earth is a question of balance, and what we have done is to practice death control in a most uh, intensive manner without uh, balancing this with uh, birth control at the other end. Consequently, the uh, birth rates remain as high as they were, and death rates have fallen substantially. <coughs> All right, then. So much for the time being, anyway, for overpopulation. Another force that is diminishing our freedoms. Well, another force which I think is very strongly operative in this country is the force of what may be called over-organization. Uh, as technology becomes more and more complicated, it becomes necessary to have more and more elaborate organizations, more hierarchical organizations. And incidentally, the advance of technology has been accompanied by an advance in the science of organization. It's now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. And so that you have more and more people living their lives out as subordinates in these hierarchical systems controlled by bureaucracies, either the bureaucracies of big business or the bureaucracies of big government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the devices that you were talking about, are there specific devices or uh, uh, methods of communication which diminish our freedoms in addition to overpopulation and overorganization? Well, there are certainly devices which can be used in this way. I mean, let us uh, take uh, 
after all, piece of very recent and very painful history is the uh, propaganda used by Hitler, which was incredibly effective. I mean, that, what were Hitler's methods? Hitler used terror on the one kind, brute force on the one hand, but he also used a very efficient uh, form of, uh, of propaganda, which uh, uh, he was using every modern device at that time. He didn't have TV, but he had the, the radio, which he used to the fullest extent, mm -hmm. and was able to uh, impose his will on an immense mass of people. I mean, the Germans were a highly educated people. Well, we're aware of all this, but how do you equate Hitler's use of propaganda with the way that propaganda, if you will, is used, let us say, here in the United States. Are you suggesting that uh, there no, is a parallel? Needless to say, it's not being used in this way now. But uh, I, I, the point is, it seems to me, that there are, are methods at present available, methods superior in some respects to, to Hitler's method, which could be used in a bad situation. I mean, I, what I feel very strongly is that we mustn't be caught by surprise by our own advancing technology. This has happened again and again in history. Technology has advanced, and this changes social conditions, and suddenly people have found themselves in a situation which they didn't foresee and doing all sorts of things they didn't really want to do. Well, now, what do you mean? Do you mean that we, we develop our television, but we don't know how to use it correctly? Is that the point that you're making? Well, at present, the television, I think, is being used uh, quite harmlessly. It's being used, I think, uh, I would feel it's being used too much to distract everybody all the time. But, I mean, imagine, which must be the situation in all communist countries, where the television, where it exists, is always saying the same thing the whole time. It's always driving along. It's not creating a wide front of distraction. It's creating a one-pointed uh, drumming in of a single idea all the time. It's obviously an immensely powerful instrument. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the potential misuse of the instrument. Exactly. We have, of course, all technology is in itself morally neutral. These are just powers which can either be used well or ill. It's the same thing with atomic energy. We can either use it to blow ourselves up or we can use it as a substitute for the coal and the oil which are running out. You've even written about the use of drugs in this light. Well, now, th this is a very interesting uh, subject. I mean, uh, in this book that you mentioned, this book of mine, Brave New World, uh, I postulated a substance called Soma, which was a very versatile drug. It would uh, make people feel happy in small doses. It would uh, make them see visions in medium doses, and it would send them to sleep in large doses. Well, I don't think uh, such a drug exists now, nor do I think it will ever exist, but we do have drugs which will do some of these things. And I think it's quite on the cards that we may have drugs which will profoundly change uh, our mental states uh, without doing us any harm. I mean, this is the, the pharmacological revolution which has taken place, that we have now powerful mind-changing drugs which, physiologically speaking, are almost costless. I mean, they are not like opium or like coca, uh, cocaine, which... Uh, do change the state of mind, but to leave terrible results physiologically and morally. Mr. Huxley, in your new essays, you state that these various enemies of freedom are pushing us toward a real-life brave new world, and you say that it's awaiting us just around the corner. First of all, can you detail for us what life in this brave new world which you fear so much, what life might be like? 
Well, to start with, I think this kind of the dictatorship of the future, I think will be very unlike uh, the dictatorships which we've been familiar with in the immediate past. I mean, take another book prophesying the future, uh, which was a very remarkable book, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, this book was written at the height of the Stalinist regime and just after the Hitler regime. And he, there he foresaw a dictatorship using entirely the methods of terror, the methods of physical violence. Now, I, I think what, what is going to happen in the future is the dictators will find, as the old saying goes, that you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. That if you want to preserve your power indefinitely, you have to get the consent of the ruled. And this they will do, partly by drugs, as I foresaw in, uh, in Brave New World, partly by these uh, new techniques of, uh, uh, of propaganda. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and uh, his physiology even, and so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new uh, regime, but they will be happy in situations where they oughtn't to be happy. But let me ask you this. You're talking about a world that could take place within the confines of a totalitarian state. Let's become more immediate, more urgent about it. We believe, anyway, that we live in democracy here in the United States. Do you believe that this brave new world that you talk about uh, could, let's say, in the next quarter century, the next century, could come here to our shores? I think it could. I mean, I... I that's why I feel it's so extremely important here and now to start thinking about these problems, not to let ourselves be taken by surprise by the uh, new advances in technology. I mean, the, for example, in, in regard to the use of the, of the drugs, we know there's enough evidence now for us to be able, on the basis of this evidence and using a certain amount of creative imagination, to foresee the kind of uses which could be made in a by people of bad will with these things, and to attempt to to forestall this. And in the same way, I think with these other methods of uh, propaganda, we can foresee and we can do a good deal to forestall. I mean, after all, the um, price of freedom is eternal vigilance. You write in Enemies of Freedom, you write specifically about the United States. You say this, writing about American political campaigns. You say, all that is needed is money and a candidate who can be coached to look sincere. Political principles and plans for specific action have come to lose most of their importance. The personality of the candidate, the way he is projected by the advertising experts, are the things that really matter. Well, this is, uh, uh, during the last campaign, there was a great deal of uh, this kind of uh, statement by the advertising managers of the campaign parties, this idea that the uh, the candidates had to be merchandised as though they were soap or toothpaste, and that you had to depend entirely on the personality. I, I mean, the personality is important, but there are certainly people with an extremely amiable personality, particularly on TV, who might not necessarily be very good uh, uh, in political pol uh, positions of political trust. Well, do you feel that men like Eisenhower, Stevenson, Nixon, with knowledge of forethought, were trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the American public? 
No, but they were, they were being advised by powerful um, advertising agencies who were making campaigns of a quite different kind from what had been made before. And I think we shall see probably uh, all kinds of uh, new devices uh, coming into the picture. I mean, the, for example, this thing which got a good deal of publicity last autumn, subliminal projection. I mean, as it stands, this thing, I think, is of uh, no menace to us at the moment. But I was talking the other day to one of the people who has done most experimental work in the in psychological laboratory with this, who was saying precisely this, that it is not at the moment a danger, but once you've established a principle uh, that something works, you can be absolutely sure that the technology of it is going to improve steadily. And I mean, his view of the subject was that, uh, well, maybe they will use it to some extent in the 1960 campaign, but they will probably use it a good deal and much more effectively in the 1964 campaign, because this is the kind of rate at which technology advances. And we'll be persuaded to vote for a candidate that we do not know that we are being persuaded to vote exactly. for. Exactly. I mean, this is the rather alarming feature, mm. that you're being persuaded below the level of choice and reason. In, uh, in regard to advertising, which you mentioned just a little ago, in your writing, particularly in Enemies of Freedom, you attack Madison Avenue, which controls most of our television and radio, advertising, newspaper advertising, and so forth. Why do you consistently attack the advertising uh, agency? Well, no, I, I think that uh, advertisement plays a very necessary role, but the danger, it seems to me, in a democracy is this. I mean, what does a democracy depend on? A democracy depends on the individual voter making an intelligent and rational choice for what he regards as his enlightened self-interest in any given circumstance. But what these people are doing, I mean, what both for their particular purposes for selling goods and the dictatorial um, propagandists are doing, is to try to bypass the rational side of man and to appeal directly to these unconscious forces below the surface so that you are, in a way, making nonsense of the whole democratic procedure, which is based on conscious choice, of, on rational ground. Of course. Well, maybe, maybe I, you have just answered this, this next question, because in your essay you write about television commercials, not just political commercials, but television commercials as such. And how, as you put it, today's children walk around singing beer commercials and toothpaste commercials. And then you link this phenomenon in some way with the dangers of a dictatorship. Now, could you spell out the connection, or how do you feel that you have done so sufficiently? Well, I mean, here, okay, this whole question of children, I think, is a terribly important one, because uh, children are quite clearly much more suggestible than the average grown-up. And, uh, again, I suppose that, uh, that for one reason or another, all the propaganda was in the hands of one or very few agencies. You would... Uh, have an extraordinarily powerful force playing on these children who, after all, are going to grow up and be adults quite soon. Uh, I do think that uh, this is not an immediate threat, but it, it remains a possible threat. And You said something to the effect in your essay that the children of Europe used to be called cannon fodder, and here in the United States they are television and radio fodder. Well, uh, after all, Dave, you can read in the... Uh, in the trade journals, the most lyrical accounts of how necessary it is to get hold of the children, because then they will be loyal brand buyers later on. Mm -hmm. 
But, uh, I mean, again, the, you just translate this into political terms. The dictator says they will be loyal ideology buyers when they're grown up. We hear so much about brainwashing as used by the communists. Do you see any brainwashing other than that which we've just been talking about that is used here in the United States? Are the forms of brainwashing? Not in the form that has been used in China and in Russia, because uh, this is essentially the application of propaganda methods, the most violent kind, to individuals. It's not a shotgun method like mm -hmm. the, uh, the advertising method. It's a way of getting hold of the person and playing both on his physiology and his psychology till he really breaks down and then you can implant a new idea in his head. I mean, the descriptions of the methods are, are really blood-curdling when you, you read them. And not only the methods applied to political prisoners, but the methods applied, for example, to the training of the young communist administrators and missionaries. They receive a, an incredibly tough kind of training which may cause about 25% of them to break down or commit suicide, but produces 75% of completely one-pointed fanatics. The question, of course, that keeps coming back to my mind is this. Obviously, politics in themselves are not evil. Television is not in itself evil. Atomic energy is not evil. And yet, you seem to fear that it will be used in an evil way. Why is it that the right people will not, in your estimation, use them why is it that the wrong people will use these various devices and for the wrong motives? Well, I think one of the, uh, of the reasons is that uh, these are all instruments for uh, obtaining power, and obviously the passion for power is one of the most moving passions that exist in man, and uh, after all, this is all democracies are based on the proposition that power is very dangerous and that it's... Uh, extremely important not to let any one man or any one small group have too much power for too long a time. After what are the British and American constitutions except devices for limiting power? And all these uh, new devices are extremely efficient instruments for the imposition of power by small groups over larger masses. Well, you ask this question yourself in Enemies of Freedom. I'll put, the, I'll put your own question back to you. You ask this. In an age of accelerating overpopulation, of accelerating overorganization, and ever more efficient means of mass communication, how can we preserve the integrity and reassert the value of the human individual? You put the question. Now here's your chance to answer it, Mr. Huxley. Well, this is obviously, first of all, it's a question of education. Uh, I think it's... Uh, terribly important to insist on individual values. I mean, what is, uh, there is a tendency, as um, you probably read a book by White, The Organization Man, a very interesting, valuable book, I think, where he speaks about the new type of group morality, group ethic, which uh, speaks about the group as though the group were somehow more important than the individual. But uh, this seems, as far as I'm concerned, to be uh, in contradiction with uh, what we know about the genetical makeup of human beings, that every human being is unique. And it is, of course, on this uh, genetical basis that the whole idea of the value of freedom is based. And I think it's extremely important for us to uh, stress this in all our educational life. And I would say it's also very important to teach people to 
be on their guard against the sort of verbal booby traps into which they're always being laid, uh, to, to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. Uh, well, I think there is this whole educational side, and I think there are many more things that one could do to to strengthen uh, people and to make them more aware of what was being done. You're a prophet of decentralization. Well, the, yes, uh, if this is feasible, uh, it's one of the tragedies, it seems to me. I mean, many people have been talking about the importance of decentralization in order to give back to the voter a, a sense of direct power. I mean, the voter in an enormous electorate feels quite impotent, and his vote seems to count for nothing. This is not true where the electorate is small and where he is dealing with a with a, a group which he can manage and understand. And if one can, as Jefferson, after all, suggested, break up the units uh, into smaller and smaller uh, units and so get a real self-governing democracy. Well, that was all very well in Jefferson's day, but how can we? revamp our economic system and decentralize and at the same time meet militarily and economically the, the, the tough challenge of a country like Soviet Russia. Well, I think uh, the answer to that is that there are, it seems to me that you are, the production, industrial production is of two kinds. I mean, there are some kinds of industrial production which obviously need the most tremendously high centralization, like the making of automobiles, for example. But there are many other kinds where you could decentralized quite easily and probably quite economically and that you would then have uh, this kind of decentralized life. After all, you begin to see it now if you travel through the south, this uh, decentralized uh, uh, textile industry which is springing up there. Mr. Huxley, let me ask you this, quite seriously. Is freedom necessary? As far as I'm concerned, it is, yes. Why? Is it necessary for a productive society? Uh, yes, I, I should say it is. I mean, a, a, a genuinely productive society. I mean, I think you could produce plenty of goods without much freedom. But I think the whole sort of creative uh, life of man is ultimately impossible without a considerable measure of uh, individual freedom. Of, uh, the initiative, creation, all these things which we value, and I think value uh, properly, are impossible without a large measure of freedom. Well, Mr. Huxley, take a look again at the country which is in the stance of our opponent anyway it would seem, anyway it would seem to be there, Soviet Russia. It is strong and getting stronger economically, militarily. At the same time, it's developing its art forms pretty well. Uh, it seems not unnecessarily to, uh, to squelch the creative urge among its people, and yet it is not a free society. It's not a free society, but here is something very interesting, that uh, those members of the society, like the scientists who are doing the creative work, are given far more freedom than anybody else. I mean, it's a privileged aristocratic society in which, provided that they don't poke their noses into political affairs, these people are given a great deal of prestige, a considerable amount of freedom, and a lot of money. I mean, uh, this is a very interesting fact about the new uh, Soviet regime. And I think what we're going to see uh, is a, a people on the whole with very little freedom, but with an oligarchy on top enjoying 
a considerable measure of freedom and a very high standard of living. And the people down below, the epsilons down below... Enjoying very little. And you think that that kind of situation can long endure? I think it can certainly endure much longer than a situation in which everybody is, uh, is kept down. I mean, they can certainly get uh, their technological and scientific results on such a basis. Well, the next time that I talk to you then, perhaps we should investigate further the possibility of the establishment of that kind of a society. Where the, where the drones work for the queen bees up above. Well, but yes, but um, I must say I still believe in democracy. If we can make the best of, uh, of the creative activities of the people on top, plus those of the people on the bottom, so much the better. Mr. Huxley, I surely thank you for spending this half hour with us, and I wish you Godspeed, sir. Thank you. Aldous Huxley finds himself these days in a peculiar and disturbing position. A quarter of a century after prophesying an authoritarian state in which people were reduced to ciphers, he can point at Soviet Russia and say, I told you so. The crucial question, as he sees it now, is whether the so-called free world is shortly going to give Mr. Huxley the further dubious satisfaction of saying the same thing about us. Now I'm going to play a lecture that Aldous Huxley gave. Obviously from a written text, as he generally did. And while we're listening to it, should you begin to think that, although it is profound and interesting, that nonetheless it, well, it seems a bit dry and slow. Well, if you begin to think that, then here's something else to think about. Aldous Huxley was the inspiration for both Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna, the inspiration that led them in a psychedelic direction. And as we listen to this uh, thought-provoking lecture, when Huxley comes to a point where he's speaking about one of the Buddhist concepts about the afterlife, and he says, the ultimate is to realize that, and I quote, thou art that, unquote. Well, when he comes to that brief point, right near the end of his talk, I suggest that you maybe pause this recording for a moment and try to recall if you've ever felt that way yourself on a deep psychedelic voyage. And if you have, well, then you know exactly what psychonauts mean when they say that these experiences are important preparations for meeting our own deaths with equanimity, and so as to eventually escape the wheel of birth, death, and rebirth that the Buddhists believe in. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> I propose to begin this lecture with a rather long quotation from William James. It's extremely relevant to our purpose and it has a great deal of charm as all James's writing has. This is what he says. To know one type of mind is it given uh, to discern the totality of truth. Something escapes the best of us, not accidentally but systematically and because we have a twist. The scientific academic mind and the feminine mystical mind shy away from each other's facts, just as they shy from each other's temper and spirit. Facts are there only for those who have a mental affinity with them. When once they are indisputably ascertained and admitted, the academic and critical minds 
are by far the best fitted ones uh, to interpret them uh, and, uh, uh, and discuss them. For surely to pass from mystical to scientific speculations is like passing from lunacy to sanity. But on the other hand, if there is anything which human history demonstrates, it is the extreme slowness with which the ordinary academic and critical mind acknowledges facts to exist which present themselves as wild facts with no stall or pigeonhole or as facts which threaten to break up the accepted system. In psychology, physiology and medicine, whenever a debate between the mystics and the scientifics has been once for all decided, it is the mystics who have usually proved to be right about the facts, while the scientifics have had the better of it in respect to theories. Now the reluctance of the scientifics, the academic and critical minds, to accept wild facts, facts which don't fit into the current uh, theories, has of course been recognized long before James uh, drew attention to it. It was recognized, for example, by Lord Chesterfield when he said that <clears throat> if someone in our days were indubitably to rise from the dead, the Archbishop of Canterbury would be the first to deny it. <laughs> and it, uh, it was recognized again by one of the early British historians of science, Playfair, in the end of the 18th century, where he spoke about the difficulty with which uh, people who had, so to say, a, an intellectual vested interest in an idea, the difficulty that they had in changing their ideas. Uh, and uh, similarly, we find this, um, uh, this uh, trait of reluctance to accept wild facts going right on through the 19th century. A particularly flagrant example of this is the attitude of the official scientific mind towards what used to be called animal magnetism, which came to be called after the days of James Braid, hypnotism. This is a really extraordinary story. When you find men like Lord Kelvin saying that hypnotism is half fraud and half bad observation. And when you find uh, doctors, for example, eminent surgeons used to say in the early days when any, before anesthetics, when amputations were performed under in the mesmeric trance, they used to say it was quite obvious that the man who was having his leg cut off was merely pretending not to feel pain just in order to spite the doctors. And other surgeons admitted that he probably wasn't feeling pain but they said he ought to feel pain because pain was very good for people. And uh, the most extraordinary and monstrous example of the, this behavior towards people who made experiments in this field uh, is the case of James Esdale, the young Scottish surgeon who went to India and performed several hundred uh, major operations, many of which had never been performed before under mesmeric uh, trance. And the most startling fact was that not only did he perform these operations without pain to his patients, he also performed them with a then incredibly low mortality rate. 
the standard mortality rate of after surgery in his day, before anesthetics and before antiseptics or asepsis, was about 29%. And Esdale uh, did his three or 400 operations with a 5% mortality. But all he got for his pains was to be violently attacked by his colleagues and hounded out of the medical profession. Uh, this shows, uh, uh, indicates very clearly how right uh, James was to, to emphasize this, um, this fact that, uh, that people with a vested interest in a certain kind of uh, philosophy find it almost impossible to accept facts which go against uh, that particular philosophy. And uh, James himself went on to discuss the reaction in his own day uh, to subjects like telepathy. The word was invented by F.W.H. Myers and was, of course, uh, the, the thing was extensively studied in the early history, the early years of the um, uh, Society for Psychical Research after 1882. Um, and James um, um, has an interesting comment on this. He says, why do so few scientists, quote, even look at the evidence for telepathy because they think, as a leading biologist now dead once said to me, that even if such a thing were true, scientists ought to band together to keep it suppressed and concealed. <laughs> it, would make, uh, it would undo the uniformity of nature and all sorts of things without which scientists cannot carry on their pursuits. And uh, this is not an exaggeration because uh, at the, about the time that James was writing this, another eminent biologist, uh, Ray Lancaster, uh, resented, uh, denounced a group of his fellow scientists in Britain for taking part in an investigation of telepathy. He said it was a disgrace that any group of scientists should demean themselves by even inquiring whether such, a, uh, such evidences had been presented could possibly be true because it couldn't, could not be true. And as late as uh, 1926, we get uh, Professor Troland of Harvard saying that the modern psychologist tends to regard alleged psychical phenomena as the modern physicist regards perpetual motion machines. And uh, at about the same time, we have Professor Joseph Jastrow saying, obviously, now, this is curious, obviously. Obviously, if the alleged facts of psychical research were genuine and real, the labors of scientists would be futile and blind. It's very difficult to see why they should be futile and blind. I mean, all that the, this seems to prove is that the uh, theory of the world on which the, the scientists were basing their uh, efforts required modification. I mean, it doesn't mean to say in the least that uh, their labors were futile. And yet we find <coughs> at the present time uh, certain extremely eminent psychologists such as Dr. Hebb of McGill uh, speaking in exactly the same way. Uh, Hebb has a very interesting uh, comment on the work of Ryan, for example. He says, personally, I do not accept ESP for a moment because it does not make sense. Ryan may still turn out to be right, improbable as I think that is, and my own rejection of his views is, in a literal sense, prejudice. 
This reminds me of an anecdote of my grandfather, Thomas Henry Huxley, where he said of Herbert Spencer that that philosopher's conception of a tragedy was a deduction foully murdered by a fact. <laughs> and here again we have this, uh, this strange phenomenon of the, uh, of the apparent, of the existence apparently of facts which because they do not fit into a certain um, type of philosophical system are either denied or else blandly ignored. And uh, we have to, uh, to remember that this is a, a very deeply rooted human tendency. And it is a deplorable tendency, but uh, it, uh, it seems to be very deeply rooted, and we must take it into account. Now, we have to consider the problem now of survival. <coughs> if ESP is a fact, and I think it is a fact, then there would seem to be some prima facie uh, reason to suppose that survival is a possibility. If, for example, uh, it is possible to establish some kind of communication between people without the intervention of bodily signs and without the intervention of the sense organs, then on the face of it, uh, it is possible to imagine that some kind of survival after the death of the body may be possible. On the other hand, once we grant the existence of ESP, of psi phenomena, the problem of validating what appear to be the evidences for uh, survival becomes immeasurably greater because practically every case, I don't think every case, but certainly a great majority of the cases which on the face of them appeared to be veridical cases of spirit communication can, on the hypothesis that ESP exists, be interpreted in terms of the medium's uh, uh, great ability in picking up information from the living. For example, a case becomes veridical, uh, is regarded as veridical, if the alleged spirit communicator gives a piece of information which subsequently uh, is uh, found out to be true. But somebody then must know it is true, and in this case, <coughs> some living person must know it is true, and in this case, obviously, uh, ESP becomes a possible explanation of the phenomena. Uh, so that we see there is this curious paradox that with the establishment of ESP, and I think, I personally believe it has been established, with the establishment of ESP we have not only a, a certain intrinsic probability that there may be survival, but we also are confronted with an extraordinary difficulty in ever demonstrating uh, that a, a given phenomenon is due to survival. It is almost impossible, I think, uh, to well, anyhow, it is very difficult, difficult or perhaps almost impossible, to devise an experiment 
which would definitely eliminate all possibility of explanation through ESP and um, uh, definitely demonstrate the spirit survival. This, of course, is, is one of the problems which does confront uh, parapsychologists at the present time who are interested in the problem of survival, the extraordinary difficulty of setting up a, um, an experiment uh, which um, would definitely establish survival, as I say, without opening the way to an explanation through a kind of extended ESP. Uh, practically all the uh, mediumistic communications, which uh, the best of which can be f uh, studied in the proceedings in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research in London and in the American Society, practically all of these, with a few exceptions, do lend themselves to perfectly plausible explanation in terms of ESP. And consequently, we have somehow uh, to think of some alternative uh, type of experiment uh, in relation to survival. And something of the same, I think, is true in the cases of those veridical apparitions which uh, have been studied ever since 1882 and have been studied recently with great uh, thoroughness by Dr. Louisa Rhine at Duke and by Dr. Hornell Hart, who was at Duke, uh, this too uh, lends itself to the same kind of interpretation because we know now by experience that an apparition which appears to give veridical information may be not what it seems to be, uh, something willed into existence by uh, an incorporeal personality, but the creation of the percipient. It may simply be the percipient picking up out of the psychic medium some kind of veridical information. And then, by means of this extraordinary dramatizing and storytelling faculty, which seems to lie at the back of so many minds, and especially at the back of uh, the minds of sensitives, building up this figure, this apparitional figure. Uh, Dr. Louisa Rhine, in her enormous collection of cases, she sorts them out into degrees of, uh, of uh, probability of, um, of survival. The great majority, she thinks, are the actual creations of the percipient uh, using ESP plus this dramatizing faculty. And she would regard as completely uh, evidential only cases in which um, the percipient of the apparition had no active motive for seeing the, uh, the apparition, whereas the uh, hypothetical disembodied spirit would have a very strong motive for presenting himself to the percipient. And uh, some of the cases that she has collected, she's collected many thousands of them and examined them very carefully, uh, some of them come fairly near to this, uh, but uh, only one appears to uh, fully come up to, the, to this standard of complete uh, convincingness in this respect, and this particular one is not very well confirmed, unfortunately. On the other hand, 
Dr. Hornell, Hornell Hart, who has also made a considerable study of the apparitional evidence, uh, is of opinion that uh, there are many apparitions uh, apparently uh, stemming from uh, incorporeal personal agencies uh, which cannot be distinguished from the apparitions of the living. Uh, these, uh, the, one of the early classics of, uh, of psychical research was Gurney's Phantasms of the Living where he brought together a very large number of, of very interesting cases of um, apparitional appearances of people actually alive. And these, this kind of census of phenomena has gone on since. And uh, Hart points out that uh, in many cases these, uh, the apparitions of the dead appear to be of exactly the same nature as the apparitions of the living. And uh, seeing that uh, in many cases we know that uh, apparitions of the living have been the vehicles of communication and action by uh, personalities, we may by analogy perhaps uh, imagine that some anyhow of the apparitions of the dead are also uh, vehicles of uh, personal thought and action. Well, be it as it may, <coughs> uh, there are, um, I think, um, uh, a number of cases which, in which the, the weight of evidence seems on the whole to fall on the side of the survival hypothesis. Uh, that it, there are cases in which it seems to be simpler and more plausible to adopt what uh, is now called the IPA hypothesis, the incorporeal personal agency hypothesis, in favor of the ESP hypothesis. There is another point, however, which I think has to be raised uh, uh, here, uh, which is that as a matter of historical fact, it is only fairly recently that it has been assumed that most of this kind of uh, evidence did refer to spirits of the dead. It's interesting in this context to compare, for example, what Burton in The Anatomy of Melancholy has to say on the subject with what one of the pioneers in the, uh, of psychical research, F.W.H. Myers, had to say uh, 200 years later. Uh, Burton in The Anatomy of Melancholy uh, dismisses as self-evidently absurd the idea that a departed spirit could possess what we should now call a medium and uh, impart information through the medium. Uh, he says that, these, uh, that information is given through mediums, but it does not come from departed spirits, but on the contrary, it comes from some non-human spiritual source, either divine or diabolical. Uh, F. W. H. Myers, on the other hand, completely dismisses this uh, very ancient hypothesis in favor of the uh, IPA hypothesis, the departed spirit hypothesis. And here, this again, I think, uh, is a rather disturbing fact that the same, essentially the same phenomena do lend themselves to interpretation either in terms of some kind of spirit possession, a non-human spirit possession, or to some kind of 
communication or possession by departed human spirits. Uh, nevertheless, I think when we have taken all these, um, these things into account, uh, it seems to me that there, are, there is enough evidence, for example, in the celebrated cross-correspondence cases, in the best uh, work of Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Leonard, uh, there seems to be enough evidence to make it reasonably plausible that something does survive bodily death. Now, if we accept this evidence on its face value, if we assume that given the immense number of facts collected since 1882, since the foundation of the uh, Society for Psychical Research, if we assume that these do point to some kind of survival of a personality or a part of a personality uh, after the dissolution of the body, the next thing we have to inquire is what sort of philosophy of the universe do we have to accept in order to be able to account for this? We've seen that uh, a, an eminent uh, psychologist of the present day, such as Dr. Hebe, regards this whole thing as making no sense. Well, of course it doesn't make any sense in terms of the particular uh, hypothesis, uh, the theory of the world, in which um, uh, he is, in, in terms of which he is carrying on his experiments and interpreting them. Obviously, if you uh, believe that mind is an epiphenomenon of matter, of the action of matter, or even if you believe that mind and matter are uh, the manifestations of a single neutral substratum, unknown substratum, if you think that, uh, for example, that uh, matter, so to say, is the outside of mind, and mind is matter as experienced from the inside, uh, then neither of these views seems to be compatible uh, with uh, the idea of survival. If you accept either of these views, then the evidence, I think, both for ESP and also for survival, which is much more difficult to accept than ESP, uh, it, it quite clearly doesn't make sense. But do we have to accept uh, this, uh, this view of the world? Uh, is, it, is, the, is the fact that mental phenomena are so obviously a function of bodily phenomena, does this fact drive us of necessity into postulating this kind of naturalistic, materialistic monism? Well, this question was discussed many years ago by William James in his Ingersoll lecture on human immortality. <coughs> and uh, he said, of course, it, it does not necessarily uh, mean that we have to accept this kind of view of the world. Uh, he says that there are two, uh, that mind uh, uh, may be a function 
of, um, of matter. But there are two kinds of functions. There is the productive function, where we say that mind is actually produced by some kind of material activity. But there is also what he calls the transmissive function, that matter, and especially the central nervous system, is the organ, the reducing valve, through which a previously existing mind stuff uh, passes into the uh, material world. And um, this view, of course, was uh, strongly supported by Bergson, and uh, it, uh, as I shall point out later on, it still has um, its adherence. And James uh, points out that the, he says that the theory of production is not a jot more simple and credible in itself than any other conceivable theory. It is only a little more popular. So that, uh, let us then distinguish between these two possible views of mind as a function of matter. The productive function, it is, is it functionally, uh, is it, uh, is the function of a productive nature or is it of a transmissive nature? Now this debate <coughs> uh, has been going on ever since James's day. And uh, let me quote here another remark of Dr. Hebbs, where he says, we have no choice but to physiologize psychology. Well, now the question is, who is we? Because he does not speak for all uh, biologists by any means. Uh, there are uh, plenty of them who do not feel that they have no choice in the matter, that they have to physiologize psychology. Uh, for example, take the case of an extremely eminent uh, biologist, uh, Professor Joseph Needham, uh, who doesn't feel anything of the kind, that he doesn't feel at all that there is any necessity in the nature of the evidence to compel us to physiologize uh, psychology. And what he has to say on the uh, matter is this. This is how he sums it up. Mind and all mental phenomena cannot possibly receive explanation or description in physico-chemical terms, for that would amount to explaining something by an instrument which is itself the product of the thing to be explained. Uh, because obviously all uh, scientific theories, such as the scientific the theory of, uh, of naturalistic, uh, materialistic monism, is a product of the mind, and as uh, we know from the philosophers of science from Mach onwards, the, um, all these uh, um, scientific theories have a, an enormous subjective element in them and are, are themselves the most characteristic products of the mind which they seek to explain, so that uh, mind is being explained away in terms of something which is a product of mind, so that we see there is a a profound logical fallacy here. Now, Needham goes on to say, the legitimacy, the legitimacy of physico-chemical explanations in the realm of physical life is well grounded, but we have found that as far as mental life is concerned, biochemistry and biophysics have no authority. 
The opinion, therefore, which seems to me most justifiable is that life in all its forms is the phenomenal disturbance created in the world of matter and energy when mind comes into, uh, comes into it. Living matter is the outward and visible sign of the uh, presence of, uh, of mind, the splash made by the entry of mental existence into the sea of matter. And he concludes this essay by saying, the biochemist and the biophysicist can and must be thoroughgoing mechanists, but they need not on that account hesitate to say with Sir Thomas Brown, there is something in us that can be without us and will be after us. Now, <clears throat> I quote this in order to show that the transmission theory is a, is a perfectly live theory at the present time and that there is uh, philosophically it seems to be better founded perhaps than the production theory that uh, we, uh, there is no compulsion for us to accept the production theory and therefore no compulsion for us to accept a theory which means that ESP or even IPA are uh, things which make no sense they do make sense in terms of a transmission theory. Now the transmission theory obviously is related to the old Platonic and Cartesian uh, theories uh, but uh, is considerably more subtle say than the, than the Cartesian theory. Uh, Descartes postulated the relationship of uh, mind and matter uh, in a, a much too limited way. He, he spoke of uh, of mind as being something whose essence is consciousness uh, being related uh, to matter whose essence is extension uh, and that each mind being completely watertight and separate from all other minds but of course now we are able to, to see that his uh, cogito ergo sum his I think therefore I am uh, should be really modified as von Bader, the romantic German philosopher of the early 19th century, modified it when he said that cogito ergo sum should be revised and that we should say cogitor ergo sum. I am thought, therefore I am. We are thought by an immensely much larger subliminal mind than the, this conscious ego of which uh, we are aware. And in the, the any kind of reasonable and realistic transmission theory, we have to postulate, I think, that this uh, subliminal mind in which our self-conscious ego floats, so to speak, like a, a kind of crystal within a, a sea, uh, within a solution, uh, this uh, subliminal mind is not cut off from all other minds, that it communicates <coughs> somehow with, with all other minds in a kind of, of psychic medium and that um, we are in a certain sense like, uh, like crystals floating within this, this medium and communicating with other crystals through the medium. Well, Bergson uh, accepted this view and maintained that uh, Intrinsically, the mind was 
virtually omniscient and that it, it merely, it was not in fact omniscient here and now because uh, for the benefit of the animal who has to survive on the surface of this planet, we cannot be omniscient because we should be so full of irrelevant information that we should simply not be able to get out of the way of the cars in the street. <laughs> and consequently, the nervous system, central nervous system in the brain, exists in order to limit this virtually endless quantity of consciousness which we virtually have, to limit it and to funnel it through for the purposes of uh, biological survival on the surface of this particular planet. Well, my own feeling is, I, I, would, I would think that this idea of a, a, a completely omniscient mind is, is a, seems to me a little fantastic. But I, I would think that there is something to be said for a view <coughs> which would say that the, this uh, psychic medium, whatever it may be, is, let us say, virtually omniscient, that it, is, it could take on into itself every kind of specialized information, but that, uh, what it is in itself is a kind of undifferentiated consciousness. And uh, as I shall try to point out later on in this lecture, uh, there is a lot of evidence from the part of the, uh, on the part of the mystics, both East and West, uh, to the effect that our particular specialized, individualized consciousness is underlain by an undifferentiated consciousness. And that this undifferentiated consciousness possesses uh, what the Catholic mystics call obscure knowledge. This is a very curious and interesting phrase which we meet with very frequently in the literature of mysticism. Uh, they speak, uh, the mystics constantly speak of this obscure knowledge of the world which is not a particular knowledge of uh, how to make uh, sulfuric acid or what is the distance of the nearest fixed star and so on. It is uh, a generalized knowledge in the individual an awareness of this total underlying awareness which uh, as I say underlies all particular awarenesses that, that this this um, obscure knowledge of the universe uh, is I think uh, a, a direct awareness of the undifferentiated uh, consciousness, mental, mentoid state, uh, which uh, underlies all particular consciousnesses. <coughs> now, uh, we exist within this undifferentiated awareness as, so to speak, a, a succession of vortices in a, in a liquid. We have, unfortunately, our psychological vocabulary is so extremely poor that we are always driven back to use these uh, material and spatial metaphors but we must always remember that uh, when we use material and spatial metaphors that we use them in a, that they are necessarily very misleading in as much as this this mental uh, this under differentiated consciousness is not in space and time 
and it does not uh, have the characteristics of a material medium. Nevertheless, we, we have to, because, simply because we do not have the necessary vocabulary, uh, to speak in these sort of terms. We have to use analogies with vortices. Well, it is as though uh, we wear persistent vortices within a medium. And I think we have to postulate that by our experience in the embodied state, we build up these particular awarenesses within the general undifferentiated awareness and that we leave certain traces in the form of persistent vortices upon the undifferentiated medium, that these things uh, go on. Uh, now, the question then arises, uh, what, what are these uh, vortices within the undifferentiated awareness? Uh, here, there's some, I think we find some very interesting suggestions from the Oxford philosopher H. H. Price, who speaks of, uh, of these different types of uh, unit of, uh, uh, so to say, the molecules of awareness, which may be of any, the complexes of awareness may be of any size, so to speak, from a, a single idea, from, from a haunting, for example, to go back to the question of survival, this uh, purely non-personal thing which seems to remain attached to a certain place, uh, up to a f large fragment of a personality and perhaps to a complete personality. <coughs> now, we pronounce this word personality, and it's a word we use very glibly, but when we come to examine exactly what it means, we are confronted by very great difficulties. What, what precisely is a personality? Uh, when we look uh, closely at personalities, our own or other people, uh, what do we find? Uh, well, I think the first thing that we are struck by is that any given personality is certainly not a monolithic unity the personality is a good deal more loosely uh, bundled together than we ordinarily think. And it is, uh, it is a non-unitary thing. It is made of, of disparate elements, uh, both in its temporal extension and in its cross-section. In its temporal extension, uh, obviously we, uh, we change very considerably um, as we grow older. But it's not merely a question of maturation that changes the personality. It's quite clear if we look at the history of almost any life that there may be profound changes of the personality uh, brought about by particular circumstances. I mean, let us take a hypothetical case of a, of a child <coughs> whose mother dies and who from having been a happy and completely healthy personality becomes a very wretched and neurotic personality. I mean, here is a, a startling change in the nature of the personality. Uh, and uh, similarly, changes of surroundings, uh, casual meetings, may make the most profound difference to people. I mean, one often hears of uh, cases of 
of people who seem to be almost moronic, who uh, suddenly find what their talents are, what they can do. A chance meeting uh, opens up a new world for them, and from having been practically idiotic, uh, they become alert and intelligent and efficient, and one sees that there is a profound change in the personality. And after all, it's one of the commonplaces of religious literature that certain types of religious experience will produce immense changes in personality, that the, the whole attitude towards life, towards other human beings, um, the whole way of behaving will change profoundly. And the whole, consequently, the whole stock of memories, uh, which obviously become extremely important in the problem of survival, will be totally changed. And uh, uh, similarly, uh, in the uh, cross-sections of a personality at any given time, there are again, obviously, uh, disparate uh, elements brought together. After all, there is the conscious and the unconscious. There is the rational and the childish in human beings. Um, there is the respectable persona and the generally rather disreputable psychophysiological reality which lies beneath it. Uh, all these things are there as, um, uh, as very loosely connected bits of the personality. Uh, and so this leads us to ask, what, what exactly do we mean by a personality do we mean what I think I am or what I would wish to be or what the Freudian analyst interprets me as being or what my friends think I am there are obviously a great many uh, ways in which a personality uh, can be thought about and um, then on top of everything else we have to remember that there are in every personality immense numbers of uh, an indefinite number I think of pot potentialities which might have been developed in other circumstances but which in the particular circumstances of the life have not been developed so that uh, over and above all the other enigmas of personality there is this, this immense enigma of the of the might have been, the, the fact that w we carry about immense latent uh, potentialities which have not, in fact, been actualized, but which might have been actualized. Well, now, from this, let us return to the question of survival. Uh, now, let us assume that the evidence which points to something surviving is valid. Now the question arises, what is it uh, that is actually surviving? Now I would agree with uh, Professor C.D. Broad, who is uh, one of the rather few philosophers who has really taken the trouble to study the uh, literature of uh, psychical research with great care and has devoted a, a lot of speculation to the problem. I would agree with uh, Professor Broad uh, in thinking that in most cases, certainly, what survives and what comes through in the 
communications with the medium or the percipient uh, is perhaps not a complete personality, whatever exactly that may be, uh, but is, is rather a, a fragment of a personality, that a piece comes through and uh, establishes some kind of communication with the percipient in life. <coughs> and in this case, we would have to assume that uh, these traces left in the psychic medium, these this surviving uh, vortices, uh, have some sort of power of being, of establishing communication with uh, the, uh, uh, the percipient and sometimes bringing through some kind of veridical information. But uh, as I say, in the majority of cases, it does look as though what is coming through is, is not a total personality, but only a piece of one. This may be because the communication is extraordinarily difficult between one mode of being and another. But uh, on the whole, I think we have to, th to envisage this possibility uh, that uh, what, what in general is coming through is only a fragment of a personality. Now, <clears throat> this means that it, it may be possible for the same human being uh, to survive in several fragments simultaneously. For example, let us take the case of a boy X and a boy Y. The boy, uh, the, these are close friends in their boyhood. The boy X dies. The boy Y goes on and lives to a ripe old age. Now, <coughs> presumably, if there is survival, uh, the personality or some fragment of the personality of the boy X associates with the vortex which left in the psychic medium by Y when he was a boy. I mean, he may be associating with something that Y has left behind him even while Y is still alive. That it, it seems to me perfectly on the cards that there, uh, there may be this uh, survival of bits of personalities which may communicate with uh, disembodied personalities even while the, uh, the first personality is still in life and that the, the, this, the boy X and the boy uh, and the, the boy who was Y will perhaps go on associating and here, uh, I mean, quite obviously, seeing that this is a, a purely mental and subjective life which is going on in the psychic medium, we must assume that the association is necessarily through similarity or through some other kind of uh, psychological congruity, that there, there, there is not a, a, an association through any spatial or chemical relationship, but solely through some a psychic uh, congruity between the two groups of surviving experiences. Well, now we may pursue this uh, still further and assume that, uh, that Y, as he grows older, 
let us assume that he marries and he loses his wife after a few years, uh, marries again, and then in later life has an accident which, say, reduces him to imbecility. Well, here he is already, or his personality is broken up into a number of fragments, each of which uh, may leave its traces behind in the, so, uh, in the uh, psychic medium and associate with those uh, surviving fragments of the people with whom he associated during life <coughs> So that uh, he will, as I say, perhaps survive in uh, several forms at the same time. Uh, this, uh, I think, is a, is a genuine uh, possibility. Uh, suppose that we now have to come to a very curious and difficult point. Suppose this kind of association of... Um, fragments of personality is possible within the uh, psychic medium, what, what can happen? I mean, suppose that uh, we, we assume that these uh, vortices which remain can associate with similar vortices. What, what, uh, what can we envisage uh, in this um, posthumous life? Here, let me quote <coughs> a curious and interesting passage uh, where C.D. Broad has discussed this. Well, he says, When we consider analogies with persistent vortices, stationary waves, transmitting beams, etc., we can envisage a number of interesting and fantastic possibilities. We can think of the possibility of partial coalescence partial mutual annulment or reinforcement, interference, etc., between the psi components of several deceased um, human beings, in conjunction, perhaps, <coughs> with non-human flotsam and jetsam, which may exist around us. There are reported mediumistic phenomena and pathological mental cases not ostensibly involving mediumship, which suggests that some of these disturbing possibilities may sometimes be realized. And then he adds, It is worthwhile to remember, though there is nothing we can do about it, that the world as it really is may easily be a far nastier place than it would be if scientific materialism were the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is a rather characteristic uh, summing up by Broad, who has said in a wry sort of way that he would be more, uh, slightly more annoyed than surprised to find himself surviving. Uh, uh, and it is characteristic of him to see only that the world might be a considerably nastier place. But he might have added, I think, that the world also may be a considerably nicer place. Uh, and for the evidence of this, let us turn for a moment uh, to the whole mystical tradition. Uh, here I think there is... Uh, I cannot see why we should reject the evidential nature 
of much of this mystical tradition. This has gone on for an immense time, both in the East and the West, this conception of this underlying, undifferentiated consciousness, this divine ground, this mother sea of cosmic consciousness, as William James called it, with which, uh, by suitable practices, individuals can become (coughs) aware, become uh, unified, even during this life. And uh, this uh, operational process, for this is what essentially it is, uh, all Oriental philosophy is essentially a kind of transcendental operationalism which uh, provides certain techniques for producing certain changes in consciousness and which then goes out into speculation uh, to give a metaphysical explanation for the nature of the uh, of the change of consciousness, and the fundamental uh, formula for uh, describing, for uh, for interpreting these uh, change states of consciousness is, of course, the ancient Indian formula, formula "Tattva Masi," Thou art that. The, uh, or as the Buddhists say, mind with a small m from mind with a large m is not divided. Uh, or again, as Eckhart would say, that the ground of the soul is the identical with the ground of the Godhead. Uh, now, in relation uh, to survival, what, uh, what does this mean? Uh, it means that immortality in the sense in which the mystics use the word they don't use the word survival so much as immortality that immortality is the continuation into the post-mortem life of the kind of awareness of the divine ground which can be attained in this life and in this context I would like to make some quotations from this perhaps one of the most remarkable of all pieces of religious literature uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead (coughs) which is a kind of handbook for helping the dead person through the intermediate state between lives uh, this is a Buddhist work of tantric Buddhism and the Buddhists of course assume that uh, there is uh, reincarnation. This has always been taken for granted in the Far East. And incidentally, in in our own Western tradition, uh, David Hume said that the only form of immortality which a a philosophic mind could accept was that of reincarnation. I don't think we have to discuss whether this is true or not. But uh, the, uh, the point is that the the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, speaks of the possibility of communicating with the departed spirit immediately after death and helping it in this intermediate state between lives if the person who dies can be made to be aware of the basic fact of the mind from mind being not divided then he can escape from the wheel of birth and death 
and enter into this timeless immortality. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead makes the following statement, that at the moment of death, the dead person becomes aware of this undifferentiated consciousness, which in the language of Mahayana Buddhism is called the clear light. He becomes aware of this, and if during his lifetime he has practiced this awareness, he is able to associate himself with this. If he has practiced during his lifetime the realization that thou art that, that the, the basic, uh, the foundation of his own, the ground of his own existence is identical with the ground of the universe, then he can unify, unite himself with the clear light and escape from the horrors of birth and of continuous birth and death. But the chances are, of course, that he will not have, I mean, the overwhelming probability is that he will not have been, uh, have achieved this kind of enlightenment during life and so will not be able to accept the pure light, the clear light as it is presented to him. It, in fact, it will seem intolerably brilliant and impossible to bear and he will then have to go on to a series of, of less intense lights. In all these stages as he goes down he can get back to immortality but the, the difficulty becomes greater and greater and he will pass then through a stage of, uh, of wild visionary illusions and finally will come down to the <coughs> point where he has to re-enter a womb and be born again merely to escape from the intolerable purity and brilliance of the clear light. It is a, it's a very powerful conception which is not unlike uh, St. Catherine of Genoa's conception of purgatory where the pain of the, of the suffering souls in purgatory is the pain of being impure in relation to this supremely pure light of God which is then experienced as fire and in this uh, conception in the, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead we see something similar that the, the clear light is of a degree of purity so great that uh, the majority of people can't stand it and have to go down finally into this comforting world of flesh once more but now let me read uh, the, the passage which, uh, with which the priest speaks to the dying man uh, and goes on speaking when the breath has ceased. What he says, O nobly born, the clear light seen at the moment of death, uh, um, you are now aware of the clear light seen at the moment of uh, death. Now thou art experiencing the radiance of the clear light of pure reality. Recognize it. Thy present intellect, in its real nature void, undifferentiated, naturally void, is the very reality, the all good. Thine own intellect, which is now voidness, yet not to be regarded as, a, as of the voidness of nothingness, but as being mind in itself, unobstructed, shining, thrilling and blissful is the very consciousness, the all-good Buddha. 
thine own consciousness shining, void, and inseparable from the great body of radiance, uh, has no birth nor death, and is the immortal and the light. Knowing this is sufficient. And this knowledge <coughs> of the clear light of the undifferentiated consciousness underlying our ego consciousness seems to be also among Western mystics the, the conception of the essence of immortality. For example, Meister Eckhart says that for an enlightened soul, and he was obviously speaking from personal experience, he says that for the soul which has purified itself, such a soul enjoys even in this life all that it will enjoy in the eternal life, that already there is eternity here and now in this knowledge of the undifferentiated ground of all uh, particular awarenesses. And I shall conclude with a, uh, an anecdote which is told about uh, Jakob Böhme, the uh, great Protestant mystic of the early 17th century. He was asked by a young friend where does the soul go after death and he replied there is no need for it to go anywhere the reason being that if the soul has been properly prepared it is so to say there already and this uh, over and against the, the whole problem of survival which the a Tibetan Book of the Dead regards as ending necessarily in the reincarnation is set over against this uh, mystical idea of immortality, of participating in the uh, divine ground of all being. And I think we uh, should always uh, make this distinction. I don't think uh, we make it sufficiently uh, strongly that, the, that survival is not necessarily a divine state at all. It may be just uh, exactly on a par with uh, the sort of life that uh, is being lived now by the average sensual man. But, and, but there is always a possibility for anybody who is prepared to fulfill the conditions. There is always a possibility of achieving this uh, union with the clear light, uh, which is uh, of the essence of immortality. Uh, it may be, of course, a complete uh, melting away into the totality of mind, or it may be, as the uh, mystics have uh, constantly uh, assured us, uh, the, well, what is possible during life, it may be a continuation of individualized awareness, transfigured, so to say, by the light of this knowledge of the undifferentiated ground of all being, so that there is a possibility, both in this world and if there is, and in the next, of a kind of individual awareness in which the soul, so to say, makes the best of both worlds, where the, uh, the absolute 
is not apart from the world, but is seen in the relative, where the, as Blake says, the, you see uh, infinity in a grain of sand and eternity in a flower, uh, that uh, there is a, a possibility, as I say, if the ground of our own being has been realized as identical with the ground of all being, uh, of a continuing personal existence which shall uh, have the quality both of the absoluteness of the divine ground and of the individualized life. This is naturally, as all the fundamental truths of life, are, this is a, a huge paradox which uh, makes no sense, of course, uh, except insofar as it is a fact of experience. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. By the way, uh, as a little side note here, there's this story about Aldous Huxley's wife, Laura, injecting him, following his strict instructions, with LSD during the hours in which he was dying. Well, uh, I happen to know that that story is true, because Laura told it to me herself. And I'm sure that must have been an interesting way to die, but for what it's worth, I have no intention of doing that myself. <laughs> you know, death is uh, one of the trips that I've never had yet, quite obviously. And I don't want to polydrug my first time I have that experience, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You know, I want to see what it's like without any enhancement. Now, uh, I'm sure that you caught the idea that uh, he kind of whizzed by us about the fragmenting of a personality after bodily death, but I don't ever remember before hearing any speculations about a person's ego surviving death in quite the same way as Huxley speculated. That is, uh, not as a singular spirit, but rather as a collection of individual fragments of one's personality. And, uh, well, this is something I'm going to spend a little of my nighttime hours thinking about. As you know, uh, I've always felt that the primary way a person's spirit remains on earth is when one of us living humans thinks about them. When we do, uh, well, in some small and strange way, I believe at least, the spirit of that person is uh, somehow alive in our minds. And that's why I make a point of thinking of all the deceased members of my family who were close to me. And uh, now that I think about it, uh, that includes almost all of them that I knew. And a little aside here, uh, if you ever want to have revenge on somebody, well, just outlive them. Then they won't be able to contradict any stories that you tell about them. Of course, uh, that means that you should also take <laughs> everything that I say with a grain of salt as well, especially when I'm talking about people who are no longer roaming the planet. So uh, uh, think about that for a minute. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that, well, at least it's interesting to contemplate that there may be a galaxy of personality fragments floating in some other dimension somewhere, somehow, like uh, countless little puzzle pieces. And uh, maybe when we die, we can uh, sort of pick and choose from those fragments and shape a new character for our non-physical life uh, that we may be embedded in. Now, if uh, after a few tokes, that doesn't blow your mind, well, then you simply have not yet smoked enough dope. As Jonathan Ott often says, beware the dreaded underdose. And in case you're wondering where I come out on the issue of life after death, 
Well, I've run the full gauntlet of varying beliefs. Finally, I've come to the same position as the man that Huxley quoted. And that is, when my body dies, uh, if I still am something that continues on, well, I would be considerably more annoyed than surprised. (laughs) And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.